and we'll be reading the first 17 verses. Romans chapter 1, where it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that in the gospel uh, your righteousness is revealed. And we pray that as we think about the gospel now, that you would reveal it to us. Whether, Lord, for the first time or for the thousandth time, Lord, we ask that you'd open our hearts to receive the good news about Jesus, to understand it, to believe it, and to trust you and to trust Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, what is Christianity all about? It's an important question, I think, to be able to answer, and yet it's surprising how often we find that a difficult question to, to address. Someone uh, might say to us, well, what, what, what is Christianity? What's, it, what's the good news? What's the gospel? Uh, I, I uh, began teaching a theology course this week, and the, co- the, the topic that we were doing was the gospel, and I said, just take a few moments and think about what you understand the gospel to be. It's surprising how when we do that, uh, it can be tricky for us to express ourselves. 
Uh, some people say uh, that the good news of Christianity is uh, various different things. Some people say that it's that if you believe God, uh, if you believe God will make you healthy and rich. Uh, that message is spreading through Africa like wildfire. But is that the good news that the Bible sets out? Is that the good news here in Romans? Some people think that the good news of Christianity is that if you're good, you'll go to heaven, and if you're bad, you'll go to hell. Some people think that the good news is that if you get into a tight situation, God will help you out. Or that if you know Jesus, you'll lead a really positive life. In other words, they think that God is a kind of supernatural therapist or counsellor. But what is the good news? Is that really the good news that the Bible sets out? Is that really the good news that we have here in uh, the letter of the Romans? According to what we read, it's actually none of those things. Here at the beginning of this letter to the Romans, to the Christians living in Rome, God, through the Apostle Paul, lays out what the good news is. He lays it out so that the Romans would know, those Christians living in Rome all those years ago would know. He lays it out so that we would know what the good news about Jesus is. And what I want to do this morning is to step through that and to look at the things, what is at the core of the Christian message that we believe. Uh, At the very beginning of the letter, we're introduced to Paul and his purpose. We read in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was a man who'd become a Christian in really extraordinary circumstances. Before he'd been a Christian, he was the number one enemy of the Christian faith. He was going all over the Roman Empire, uh, locking up Christians and even overseeing, in some cases, their execution for what they believed about Jesus and what they were saying about Jesus. But then one day, according to Paul, he became convinced of the truth about the gospel. He became convinced... Because on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Jesus. And having met the risen Jesus, he became convinced of the truth about Jesus. And then he became one of the chief missionaries and leading teachers in the early church. That's what Paul means when he says he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel just means good news. Paul has been set apart by Jesus with the mission of making the good news known. In fact, he says later at the end of chapter 1 that he's obligated uh, to people with the good news. Now, there's two ways I think that, that we can be obligated to a person. The, one, the first way we can be obligated to someone is if they give us something, and then we have to return it to them. So someone might lend you $100, and then you're, you know, then you're obligated to pay them back. That's not the kind of obligation that Paul is talking about here. The kind of obligation that he's talking about here is when someone gives you $100 and says, can you pass that on to Bob? And that Paul, Paul is saying that's how he's obligated. He's been obligated by God. God has entrusted him with a message to give to someone else, to give to others. God has entrusted us uh, with a message, the message of the gospel, which he's entrusted us to give to others. And the reason that Paul is writing uh, this letter to the Romans is because of that obligation to share the good news. He says in verse 11, 
I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He wants to write to them, Paul wants to write to them about the gospel so that the Christians in Rome might become strong in their faith. And so that they might be mutually encouraged by the gospel. He longs for those Christians to become more and more mature as Christians. Often as Christians we think uh, of the gospel as something that we begin the Christian life with and then move on to something else. We sort of think of the gospel as the baby food. That's what you start off with. And then later on in the Christian life, you move on to more complicated doctrines, to some seriously heavy stuff. Uh, and that's kind of how you, you sink your teeth into that, and that's how you become mature. But Paul says that what makes us strong and mature Christians is continuing to drink deeply of the gospel in all its simplicity and in all its rich complexity. You see, the gospel is multifaceted. So it's simple in one view, but also in other views it becomes uh, more complicated, uh, more substantial. And the, the more we drink deeply of it, uh, the more we understand its depths, the more mature we become uh, as Christians. So Paul wants to write to these Roman Christians so that they will become more mature, but he also wants to write to them in verse 13, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Harvest language in the Bible is often bound up with the idea of people becoming Christians. So Paul wants to write to these Roman Christians in order that he might encourage the existing Christians to become more mature and so that those who aren't Christians might become Christians. And he'll do that through the gospel. In other words, if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, the most important thing that you can know is the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. And thankfully in the rest of this chapter, Paul explains what that good news is. So what, what is the good news that Paul uh, is obligated to share. Well, first of all, he says in verse 2, it's the gospel that he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That might not seem important, but it is. Paul is saying that the good news about Jesus is not just entirely new news. It's not just that Jesus turned up one day, he appeared in Jerusalem, and, 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 and what he began to preach was something that no one had ever heard before. The clarity with which the gospel message came through Jesus is, 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 is more clear than it was in the Old Testament. But the message, the essential message, is not different to the Old Testament. The good news that God would rescue the world from sin and death and judgment, that news is as old as human sin itself. The very day that Adam and Eve, the first two people who ever lived, the very day that they plunged the world into chaos by choosing to follow their own desires rather than living according to God's purpose and design, the very first day when the world was plunged into chaos, into the chaos of sin and death, God said on that day that he would rescue the world. That through a descendant of Eve, he would send a, a, a person who would put the world right. 
And that message, that good news continued, was expanded upon as time went on, as through the Old Testament God made known more and more what he was going to do. How he would forgive sins, how the death of someone else would stand in the place of our death, how the sins of the people who turned to God would be buried in the depths of the sea, how God would call to himself a people in whose hearts he would put for love for him and obedience and, and goodness and righteousness. Paul starts out by saying that the news about Jesus is not entirely new news, but old news made more clear. Second, he says, it's good news about his son. The gospel, the good news is fundamentally about Jesus. The good news is not simply a set of facts, but it's a person, a loving person, a wonderful person, a kind person, a gracious person but also a strong person, a determined person, a holy person, an obedient person. A person who is no ordinary person, but who is God's son, who is with God before the creation of the world, who, although it blows our minds, who is God, who is one with the Father and the Spirit. For the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the good news was this. Behold your God. It's an interesting description of the gospel, isn't it? Behold your God. The good news is that in Jesus we can see God and meet God. The God that we couldn't see because our sin kept him from us and us from him. The God that we couldn't touch, the God that we struggled to know even though his fingerprints are all over our lives and all over our world, the God that we know somehow, we sense him, we see his creativity and his rule over our lives, we see it in glimpses, the God that we knew but didn't know. That God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. People say, I want to see God. Well, you can say to them, there he is. Get to know Jesus. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. Discover who God is. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul describes the good news as the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Behold your God. Here he is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The good news is about knowing God and knowing God through his majestic son, Jesus. So the good news is about Jesus being the king. Look at verse 3 again. Paul says, It is the good news regarding God's son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. That might sound like a really strange observation to us. Uh, who's David and why is that important uh, that he should be descended from David? But if we understand the history of what God was doing in the centuries before Jesus was born, it, it helps us to make sense of what Paul is trying to say here. In the Old Testament, uh, before Jesus was born, there was, there's a book, the book of Judges, in which there is this constant refrain which keeps 
coming back again and again and again. And the constant refrain goes something like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. It's really a fate which describes the fate of the whole world. There's no king, there's no ruler, there's no government that people are willing to give authority to over their own lives. Instead, everybody just does what they see fit. Who are you to tell me what to do? And so in the days after the judges, God gave his people a king. God raised up human kings. But the human kings were flawed people. They took advantage of the people that they ruled over. They, ruled, they didn't rule over the world under God. They did things their own way. And they ended up hurting people. They ended up crushing the people that they ruled over. They ended up leading the people astray. They ended up leading the people away from God. The best of those kings was a man named David. That's the person that Paul mentions here. God describes him as a man after his own heart. But even David wasn't good enough. Even David led the people astray. Even David took advantage of the people. And the most famous example of that, you might know it, is when David used his power to sexually exploit a married woman. He used his power to take advantage of her. And then he used his power to cover up the crime by having her husband murdered. The failure of David is a, is a microcosm. It's just a little picture of the failure of all human leaders. And yet, and this is what, uh, what Paul is picking up on, yet God had promised David that one day he would send him a descendant, a son, a king who would be like no other king, a king who would be just and wise, who would always do what was right, a king who would always obey God, always lead people in the ways of God, a king who would never crush people, by taxing them to death, by taking all that they owned and using it for himself. A king who would rescue his people rather than destroy them. And Paul is saying that that promised king is Jesus. Jesus is God's king. He's not just a saviour, but he's a king. You might think that a king is a really odd thing to hope for. But actually... Deep down, I think all of us feel the need for that. You only have to turn on the television or open the newspaper to see that the world is longing for a good king and a good ruler. The world is full of tyrants. In the last century, political leaders killed millions of people, and not only in war, that is, they not only killed people who were from other nations around them, Political leaders killed their own people. They massacred their own people. Hitler massacred the Jewish people living in Germany. Stalin, Lenin killed the people living in Russia. Pol Pot, Mao. They killed millions, not of their enemies, but of their own people. Today we might think of a person like Bashar al-Assad in Syria who's using uh, and has used chemical weapons against his own people. Uh, or we might think of Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, 
He remains a threat not only to his own people who are, for the most part, starving, but, as we've seen only too clearly in the last few weeks, he's a threat in terms of his weapons stockpile, uh, nuclear armament, the, the desire for nuclear armament, and a stockpile of dangerous chemical weapons. Or even more moderately, we might think of someone like Robert Mugabe, who's just a run-of-the-mill tyrant, uh, hoarding the country's wealth for himself and driving people into poverty. Closer to home, the longing for a ruler of substance occupies the public imagination. The election of Donald Trump is seen by many on both sides of politics in America and around the world as a move against the political establishment. People are fed up with politics. People are fed up with political leaders. Here in Australia, governments barely last their full term, whereas until only a few years ago, it was almost unheard of for a government to only last a single term. It was the political, it was, it was the political understanding that that just never happened, that if you got elected once, you get elected a second time. But in the last few years, all that's been thrown out the window. Those realities are signs of people fed up with the political class and longing for someone to rule with justice and truth and fairness. And the Bible says that the answer to those longings ultimately lies not in a fresh election, or in a new party, but in Jesus, the true king, the only really good king and just king and merciful king and righteous king who always does what is right. The good news is not new news, but old news made more clear. The good news is about Jesus. The good news is about Jesus, the perfect king who saves his people. Fourth, the good news is about Jesus' resurrection from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. The gospel is about Jesus who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the promised king, but he's also a king like no other king. He's God's son. He's always been God's son. But Paul says that when he triumphed, over death by dying in our place and being raised to life, he was appointed to a new role, if you like. He was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He was appointed with the authority over life and death. He was appointed to raise his people to life. He was appointed to share with them what he had, he had obtained in himself. That is, resurrection from death. Death no longer has mastery over Jesus and death no longer has mastery over those who belong to Jesus because he has defeated death in his own death and his own resurrection. And he shares that victory with those of us who know him and trust him and entrust ourselves to him. One day, all of those who die in Jesus will rise to new life. They will rise to everlasting life with God. And if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. It's hard for us to see the good news of Jesus being king, but it's not hard for us to see the good news of Jesus being raised from the dead, of people being raised from the dead, of 
death being defeated. The atheist uh, philosopher Luke Ferry says it's kind of Christianity's trump card. It's the one thing that Christianity, Christianity offers that nobody else does. Resurrection from the dead, life, personal life. Not absorption into kind of reabsorption into the universe. Uh, not kind of an ongoing memory. But resurrection, personal resurrection from the dead. As you stand beside the grave of a friend who trusted Christ, it's good news to know that Jesus is master over life and death. Uh, And as you and I face death in the future, it's good news that Jesus has conquered death and that if you trust him, he will share his life with you. Uh, Recently, uh, I think it was the grandson of Philip Jensen, a 16-year-old boy. Uh, He was diagnosed last year with cancer, I think brain cancer. Uh, And he died in January this year, but before he died, he recorded for his youth group uh, a video where he spoke about his hope in Jesus and and the resurrection from the dead. Death isn't just for 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds. It's not just for old people. Death is for young people as well. And so the hope of the gospel is for young people as well. The good news isn't just new news, it's old news. It's news about Jesus, Jesus the perfect king, about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Fifth, the good news is the power of God for everyone who believes. We're skipping down now to the end of the chapter, uh, or the end of this section that we're looking at, and Paul elaborates there further on what the gospel is. He says in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The good news is not about what we do, it's not about how we respond to God. The good news is about what God does. The good, the good news is about salvation or the rescue that God brings. But the gospel is not just about God's power. It's not just about what God does. The gospel itself is God's power. The news of what God has done in Jesus is the power of God. Apart from God, we're dead, we're helpless. We're unable even to respond to God. Deep down in our hearts, we're embittered towards God and hostile towards God so that unless God does something powerful, unless God does something beyond our power, we'll never turn to him. We're so locked up in ourselves. We're so turned in on ourselves. And in doing, uh, turned in on doing our own thing, running our own lives, that unless God grabs us, unless God does something from outside of us, unless God does something powerful, we're lost. And Paul says that the powerful thing that God does is preaching the gospel, making the gospel known. When when people hear the gospel, God works. God works through it by his powerful Holy Spirit. God works through the words that people speak about Jesus. Those words strike deeply in people's hearts and they're drawn, people are drawn 
to Jesus by those words. They're compelled by them, not in a kind of an arm-twisting way, believe in Jesus or else, but in the way that true love compels people to respond in love. That's how the gospel compels people. The gospel paints a picture of who God is. It paints a picture of who Jesus is. And people go, I need to know that Jesus. The gospel's not just the power of God in bringing people to salvation, though. It's also the power of God in making us new people. It's the power of God in growing Christians, as we said before. Elsewhere, Paul talks about how those who see Jesus in the gospel are transformed with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying as we look at Jesus, as we see Jesus, we're transformed into that. Imagine that. Imagine looking at a, a, a painting on your wall and as you looked at it, you were transformed to be like it. It wouldn't happen, would it? Or imagine if you met a person and the more you studied them, the more you became like them. Well, that sometimes happens, doesn't it? But here in the Bible, God says that that happens so assuredly, so determinedly, so compellingly, so wonderfully, so powerfully that when we behold Jesus, we become like him. We see him and we say, I want to be like that. And the Holy Spirit works that great miracle in our lives. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit takes hold of people's hearts, opens their eyes to see Christ for who he really is. And beholding him, they believe in him and entrust themselves to him. And seeing him, they love him more and more every day. And seeing him, they honour him. And seeing him, they give up their lives to serve him. And many people here can testify to that. That seeing Jesus, they're not the person that they were. That seeing Jesus, they love him. That seeing Jesus, he's captured their heart. And the joys of earth grow strangely dim. That seeing Christ, they've seen the Father. That seeing Christ, they've given up their life to serve Jesus. And that hasn't made them an unhappy, bitter person. But it's given them the joy that they always longed for, but always sought for in the wrong places. And when we see that in our lives and in the lives of others, it's the evidence that the gospel is the powerful, doing the powerful work of God. It's evidence that the gospel has come not only in words, but also in power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the power of God because in it we behold Christ and beholding Christ we embrace him and we love him. You can understand then why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he always have to say that? 
unless we were tempted to always be ashamed of the gospel. But when we see that in the gospel, it's, people see Jesus and the power of God takes hold of people's lives. It's only when we see that that I think we can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because however stupid it seems to me at the moment, saying it to this person, however silly I feel, however uncomfortable or awkward I feel, it's the power of God. And who knows what God will do with it. Sixth, the good news is about God's righteousness coming to us by faith. Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 500 years ago uh, this year, uh, if you like, there was a monk named Martin Luther who, when he read this verse, was desperately confused. When he read the words, the righteousness of God, he thought that what it referred to was God's wrath and God's justice against all the sinful people in the world. God's wrath is being revealed against people. That's what he thought. He looked at the cross and he saw, he saw God's anger. God must be angry with people because of what we've done. We've killed his own son. He couldn't work out how people who deserve God's wrath could escape God's righteousness. Because that's the problem, isn't it? When you and I stand before God at the final judgment, how will we stand? How can we have confidence before a holy and righteous and blameless God? How can we have confidence that God will say, come into eternal happiness, come into my kingdom? But Martin Luther discovered eventually that he got it the wrong way around. According to Paul, the gospel reveals God's righteousness in that it shows the way that sinners can be righteous before a holy God. Paul doesn't explain all of the mechanics of that here. We'll see some of that in the weeks ahead. But what he's saying is that the good news is that the righteousness and holiness of God himself becomes ours through Jesus. When we cling to Jesus and entrust ourselves to him, everything that belongs to, to Jesus becomes ours as well. His death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. The good news is that in Jesus, all the wrong that we've done has been crucified, has been put to death. All that was wrong with us has died. All that we've ever done against God has been struck out and buried in the depths of the sea. And the righteousness and holiness and love and obedience of Jesus has become ours. So that when we hide ourselves in Jesus, by faith, God looks at us and sees the perfection of his own son. The good news is not new news, but old news made more clear. It's news about Jesus, about Jesus the perfect king, about his resurrection from the dead, it's the power of God. It's about God's righteousness being given to us. Last of all, the good news is for everyone who believes. Look again at verse 16. 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The good news is for everyone, for the Jewish people first, in the sense that when Jesus came, the good news went to them first of all because they were the people uh, through whom God had revealed in the Old Testament his great work of salvation. God had been working it out through them. And so the gospel went to them. But Paul's point is not that it's only for them, but it's for everyone. The gospel is for every human being. So whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you're at, the good news of what God has done in Jesus is for you. It's for you. The reason that the good news is good news is because it's for the broken, the crushed, the evil, for those whose lives have fallen apart. Uh, I've been watching uh, on television, I don't know if anyone's been following it, Ice Wars on Tuesday nights uh, on ABC. It's about the ice epidemic. Uh, And there was a man, Michael, his name was, uh, who had been married for 30 years. Uh, And then he got addicted to ice uh, and his life broke down. Uh, in the program, they're catching up, the, the, uh, the mental health services are catching up with him on the streets of Blacktown. He's living out of a shopping trolley. Uh, he's divorced from his wife and his kids live in another city. His life had fallen apart. He was an ordinary guy. His life had fallen apart. The gospel is for people like that. The gospel isn't just for the middle class. It's for the broken But it's not just for the broken. It's for those of us whose lives look together as well. For those of us who can hide our sin under middle class respectability. Sometimes uh, when I've invited a person to church, they've half-jokingly said something like, I couldn't come because the roof would fall in on me. I don't know if anyone's ever said something like that to you. And what they mean is, of course, that if they set foot in church, God would judge them for being so wicked. But the good news of the gospel is that the roof has fallen in on Jesus so that we can come to God through him and God will welcome us with open arms, whatever we've done. Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial murderer, sex offender and cannibal who between 1978 and I think 1991 killed 17 men and boys. When he was found, they found severed heads on the kitchen table uh, and in wardrobes around the house. He was convicted uh, and eventually he was murdered in prison by another prisoner. But it would seem that in the last years of his life, he came to understand the gospel. A Christian minister visited him regularly, explained the gospel to him. And as far as we can tell from this side of the world, Jeffrey Dahmer came to believe in Jesus. And yet as one person has said, 
if Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven, I don't want to be there. But of course, the good news of the gospel is not just that a person like Jeffrey Dahmer could be in heaven. The good news is that he won't be the same person. And neither will we. He will be forgiven by God, but also remade in the image of Jesus. The good news is that even a person like Jeffrey Dahmer could be redeemed. And the good news is that people like you and me can be redeemed as well. And all we have to do is receive it by faith. It is for everyone who believes, Paul says. Or verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. That is, the righteousness that God offers to us in Jesus is received by faith. It's not simply faith in the truth of it, though that's part of it, but faith is the surrender to the God and Christ of whom the gospel speaks. A better word is trust. We need to entrust ourselves to God and to what he has done in Jesus. So you might have faith that a bridge will hold you up, but that's all just a matter of speculation unless you actually set foot on the bridge and walk across it. Unless you entrust yourself to that bridge, it's all a matter of speculation. And in the same way, we need to entrust ourselves to Jesus. Not just believe in what he's done, yes, but having believed, having accepted the truth of it, entrusted ourselves to him. So the question I'm about to ask then is the most important question that anyone will ever ask you. Have you received what God has done in Jesus? Have you put out your hands to take hold of the death of Jesus for your sins against God? And have you put out your hands to receive the transforming resurrection life of Jesus? Have you embraced Jesus Christ? If you haven't uh, and you'd like to, I'm going to pray a prayer now. Uh, and you might like to pray along with that prayer in my heart, uh, within your heart, I should say. Uh, and even if you have embraced Jesus, you might like to pray uh, this prayer along too in your own heart as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you made me. You formed me in my mother's womb. You gave me life and you give me life and breath every moment of the day. I belong to you. But I confess, Lord, I've lived a life against you and without you. But I trust the good news of what you've done in Jesus. I trust him and this very moment I give my life to him. That he might save me and that he might own me.
I receive now his death in my place for my offences against you. I receive his powerful resurrection life which comes through your Holy Spirit. I trust that you have forgiven me in Jesus. I trust that I'm your child. Please help me to live that out and to serve you in love all the days of my life and then for eternity. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.